All right, well, good afternoon and welcome. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders here at church. And uh, thanks for joining us on Mother's Day. <clears throat> and thank you to Jamie and Jacob for putting that video together. That was uh, amazing to have a look at. The, um, if, you're, if you're wondering, so it was my kids that were saying the spicy water thing. Does, does anyone know what spicy water is? Yeah, mineral water. And it happened because one of them, we had some that just looked like water and they went to have some. And spat it out and said, it, it's spicy. And the look on the face was of betrayal, like, water, you were supposed to give life, not take it away, right? So they were freaked out and they called it spicy water. So that's what it was. It's not hard liquor or anything like that. That's over in the Mork's house, apparently. But, um, but it's great to be looking at, uh, at the Gospel of John together. So we, if you haven't been with us week in and week out, we've been moving through the Gospel of John, which is the story of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. And we've come to this section where it's really, it's the night before Jesus' death, and most of the book is actually spent in this little section where Jesus is talking to his disciples before he dies, and we are in chapter 14 uh, that Gav read out just before, uh, where Jesus makes an incredible claim. He claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. And this is significant. I think if there's one thing that my mum taught me, it was that the truth matters. And it reminds me of a story that she, she is verbally described as the low point of her parenting life. And I'm going to share it with you. But it's, it really hinges on me being terrible rather than her, so it's fine. But um, in, in primary school, so I went to Glazel Primary School, so not that far from here. And uh, I actually, not to put tickets on myself, but I was actually a school captain. But the, uh, the reason that's not that impressive was because Glazel back then was quite a, it was a pretty multicultural school. And there were only 12 boys in my class. And my first language was English, so I got to be school captain because he had to give public talks. So I was the, I was the Stephen Bradbury of school captains. But, um, but anyway, I got to be school captain, which meant certain privileges came with that. And one of those was that you got to look after the sports storeroom. So when kids would come and borrow sports equipment during the day, you kind of were the one who kind of doled out the equipment. Now, in year six, I played on a soccer team, and in the off-season, everyone was playing cricket. And so for the first year, I started playing cricket. But unlike everyone else, I didn't have all the gear that they had. And one day we were in the sports storeroom. It was Paul Jick Midgen's idea. But he said, hey, look, you don't have any gear. And the school has lots of gear. You're probably doing them a favor just by clearing out the storehouse if you actually took some for yourself. And I thought that sounded like a pretty good idea. So I took all the equipment that had Glazer Public School written on it and kind of colored over the top with text. And I took it home and I told mum that, Paul Duke Midgen, who had never played cricket in his life, gave me all his spare cricket gear, right? Um, but, uh, but one of the things you may know about cricket is if, when you play it, especially with the batting gear, it gets a bit hot and sweaty and smelly, and so it needs to be washed. And so the first time this gear goes through the wash, it must have been the case that the school had written the, their name in permanent marker, and maybe I went over with a whiteboard marker, but whatever happened, it all came off. And I remember coming home from school, and all the cricket gear was laid out, and it had Glazel Public School just everywhere. And mum was like, what has happened? So I fessed up, I told her what happened, but then this was the bit that she said was the hardest thing kind of in a parenting life, was deciding to take me with my little school, badge, uh, school captain badge up to school to Miss Herford and Mr. Kelly to have to tell them that I'd nicked the school's gear. And she was like, I didn't want to do it, but she said you needed to know that the truth mattered and that you had to tell them. And it was a profound lesson. I remember it clearly even to this day, having to do it. And it was the case that mum and dad wanted to instill in me that the truth 
matters. And it does, doesn't it? And that's what Jesus, in this passage, when Jesus claims to be the truth, he's making a massive claim that truth matters, but more than that, that he is it. See, in this section, in this section of John, in the, in the, what they called sort of the Last Supper, there's a conversation that starts where his disciples are asking him about what's going to happen. They know that Jesus is going away, but they haven't quite got the details about what's happened. They're not sure about the fact that he's going to go and die a terrible public death. And so he's trying to explain everything to them. And we pick up the action in John 14, 1 to 6. And Jesus says this to his small group of disciples. In John 14, 1 to 6, it will come up on the screen for you. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I'll take you to myself, that where I am you also may be. And you know the way where I am going. But Thomas, one of the disciples, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus tells them that he's going away. He's going to be killed. He'll be hung on a cross. And he's going to prepare a place for them. He's preparing a way for them to be with God forever. And it's going to happen through his death the very next day. But then he goes on to make probably the most profound claim he makes in all of Scripture, which is to say, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's huge. So we're going to unpack it one piece at a time. Jesus claims not that he is a truth, but that he is the truth, capital T truth. It is the case that not all things that are true and not all things that are equally true are equally important. There are some truths that you can know to be fully and completely true that have little or no consequence on your life. Nothing reminded me more of this then when I was teaching, I'm, I'm a high school teacher, and my hat goes off to you if you're a primary school teacher, but I don't know how you do it day in and day out. Because one of the things that was hardest about teaching primary school kids, I only did it for aftercare for a, a few years while I was training as a teacher, but one of the things that would constantly happen is kids would come up to you and tell you things that were of just no consequence. <laughs> so I remember one time being there in the afternoon, a kid would come up and say, um, well, um, Mr. Dunn, I... I had the hula hoops and I was using them and then Alison took the hula hoops and she started using them and copying me. And I just thought, I have no opinion on this. I don't even, I don't even know what to say to you. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Is that naughty? Is that, is that something you get in trouble for? What am I supposed to do with this? It was something that was true, but there was almost no way to respond to it. It was of so little consequence. Sorry, not to hate on Alison or whatever. I'm sure it was important. But the truth is, that there are many things that are true, and yet because they affect us not at all, are not really that worth paying attention to. But as something, as a truth becomes more significant, it starts to impact more of our life, right? So think about it this way. Let's say, let's say Maya or something is giving away free stuff. That's something that might be true, and it may or may not affect your life. If that's something that you're interested in, you might move your schedule a bit in order to get there to get some free stuff. But it's a truth that's kind of of some consequence. But let's say it's true that you were speeding and lost your license. Now, if that's true, that's going to have a much wider impact, isn't it? That's going to affect your work, what you do with your weekends. It's going to affect how many people need to help you out. That's going to impact a lot more of your life if that's true. 
Or what about the truth that you've won a million dollars? If that were true, that's going to impact almost every area of life. That's going to impact not even just what's happening right now, but things to come in 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years' time. Or let's say you got the news that the cancer you thought was life-threatening is now in remission and you are fully and completely healed. If that was true, that's going to transform everything. How you see your life, your relationships, your family, everything around you, right? The bigger the truth is, the more of your life it impacts. Jesus says, I'm not just one among many truths, I'm the truth. That is, if, what, if Jesus is true, it's the truth that impacts absolutely everything. There is nothing in your life that will be left unaffected by the truth of Jesus. Because the claim of Jesus was that he was God become human to come and die for your sins and defeat sin and death. And that's a truth that if it's true, changes absolutely everything. One theologian called N.C. Wright puts it this way. He says this, How can you put an earthquake in a test tube or the sea into a bottle? How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself came, came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity means that or it means nothing. It is either the more devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. When Jesus claims to be the truth, capital T truth, the truth that changes absolutely everything, it is uncompromising. And he is either that and it is absolutely true, or it is absolutely a lie, but it is nothing in between. Jesus is the greatest liar in history, or he is the truth, and the one who changes everything. But one of the things you might be thinking at this point is, well, isn't this the worst part about religion? The, the idea that people say, well, I've got the truth, therefore your religion isn't true, and my truth is greater than your truth. Isn't that the thing that leads to all kinds of conflict and tension in the world? Isn't that the worst thing about it? Isn't it a better way to think about things as all being equally true, that actually all religions and faiths are equally valid and equally valuable? Isn't that a more helpful way to think about religion rather than saying, well, this one's the capital T truth and all the rest aren't, or whatever it is, right? And sometimes the way of describing this is, is using the illustration of kind of like of people around an elephant with blindfolds. You might have heard this one before. But the idea is this, that uh, if you kind of think of the elephant as representing truth and think about three men who are kind of around an elephant and they're blindfolded. And you ask them the question, well, what's an elephant like? And one's got the leg and so they say, well, it's kind of like a, a tree trunk. And then someone else has got the tail and they're like, well, it's kind of like a snake. And someone else has got the tusk and like, well, it's actually quite hard and pointy. And then you say, well, actually, all of you are right. You've all kind of got part of the truth. And some people give that as an illustration. That's how we understand all the faiths, that actually all of them kind of understand a little bit of the truth all themselves. But what's the problem with that illustration? If you believe that that's a way to see religion and world faiths, who are you in the illustration? You're the one who can see the whole elephant. You can see the whole truth. You're the one who can see the big picture. And so to say that all religions are equally valuable and all the same is to make an absolute truth claim. It is to do the very thing that you're saying religions shouldn't do. And usually it goes something like this. 
all, all religions actually worship the same God. But that hinges on a very specific view of God. And usually, it's one something like this. The God is, a, is an all-powerful, all-loving force who accepts people no matter what they believe, and they come to him as they are. The problem with that is, that's a very specific view of God that really is only popular in our pocket of Western society. That's not something that world faiths actually share. And so to say that that is the right view is to do exactly what all the other religions are doing. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, ironically, the belief that doctrines are not important is a doctrine itself. It holds a specific view of God in mind that is touted as superior and more enlightened than the beliefs of major religions. The proponents of this view forbid people from doing the very thing they are doing. How could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself can see the whole truth? See, when we say that religions are superficially different but deeply the same, it's only possible to do that if you don't know any of them particularly. If you think about it like this, a number of years ago I was travelling in Southeast Asia, which means I was in Indonesia, the only country I've ever been to, but I've shared that before so it makes it sound more exotic if I say I was in Southeast Asia. But um, we, we went over with a team, we met, we met a bunch of Christians from an area called Taraja and Sulawesi, and as the, um, the two kind of groups of people met each other, uh, as often happens, people were getting names mixed up. Uh, they, they started calling me, just because I had a soccer ball with me, David Beckham, <laughs> guilty, you know, happy to take that one. Um, but, uh, but basically it was just because I was roughly fair and had a soccer ball. Um, but they were funny, they were mixing up some of our team members and we were doing the same. But obviously, as the trip gets on, you start to know each other a bit better and, and can, you know, can pick each other a bit easier. But uh, it's often the case with cultures. Like, it, it, would be, it would be odd for them to have said to us, oh, gosh, all you Aussies just look the same to us. Or for us to say, oh, all you Indos just look the same to us, right? You, you wouldn't say that, right? Because you know, as you get to know people, that you do recognize that people are very different. And it is quite easy to pick one another apart. The only way to say that all religions are the same is to not be very well acquainted with any of them. They make radically different and irreconcilable claims about who God is and what it means to find him, or her, or it, or whatever. The truth is, everybody holds an exclusive view of the truth. Everybody makes exclusive truth claims. Jesus is not being any more radical in that sense. What's radical about Jesus is the size of the truth claim that he makes. He claims to be God in flesh, come to save us and make the way back to God. But as you hear that, you might say, well, if that's the case, well, how will we ever have peace? I mean, isn't that the worst thing about religions, that everyone's fighting one another because they're like, we've got the truth. No, we've got the truth, whatever it is. Well, Martin Luther King Jr. didn't think so. When he went into the, the, uh, to the South... And when he was imploring white people to take up the cause of racial reconciliation, he didn't encourage them to be less religious, he encouraged them to be more religious. What he came to, the, the message he came to the South was, was to say, you call yourselves Christians, and yet you don't act anything like Jesus calls you to act. If you understood the implications of the gospel, racial reconciliation would be the natural and logical outflow of what you're doing and it's not like that he didn't call them to be more secular he called them to follow through on their convictions as Christians to create a more loving and reconciled society but why what is it about the truth of Jesus that is so transforming 
Well, this brings us to the second claim. Jesus claims to be the way. Now, notice what is different about this with almost any other worldview or world religion. Almost all other world religions will want to show you the way, but almost well, no one claims to actually be the way. Muhammad was a prophet who pointed people to the way of Islam. Buddha showed people the way to become enlightened. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to show you the way. He says, I am the way. See, all major uh, worldviews or religions have to deal with the fact that we are deeply flawed as people. And that doesn't matter if it's an it's a official religious worldview or whether it's a secular worldview. We have to start with the fact that we all know we are not the kind of people that we should be. But they vary in their explanations. For some religions, the reason we are deeply flawed is because we are not personally disciplined enough. For others, we are suffering the consequences of other people's poor behavior, of our parents or systemic injustice. The modern psychological view of self is that we are not the cause of the problem. It's things that are, are sort of caused for us. For other worldviews or religions, it's not something we've done in this life. It's something in a past life. But whatever it is, every worldview deals with the fact that we are deeply flawed as people. And what they'll say is, well, look, if you haven't been self-disciplined enough, we'll show you the way to be more disciplined. If you've done something wrong in a past life, we'll show you how to make it up. We'll show you the way. If it's the fact that you are not living up to your full potential, we'll show you how to do that. We'll show you the way. Every other system or worldview claims to show you the way to find wholeness and fulfillment. Jesus says, no, you can't do it. Jesus says, I am the way. What does that mean? Jesus is telling his disciples on the night before that he's about to die so that they'll understand what's going on. He says to them, you are deeply flawed and your main issue is not that you have suffered from other people's behavior, not that you did something in a past life. Your main issue is that you have willfully rejected God and sinned against him and you were cut off from him. And that means you are separated by death and separation eternally and there is nothing you can do about it. Like a crime that's been committed, there is no way to undo it. The only question now is of penalty. And the problem is it is too great a penalty for you to pay. And here is the good news. Jesus says, I am the way. He is the one who's going to pay the penalty for our sin so that we will know God, so that we can be reconciled to God. And this is why, unlike other religions that focus on the way that you get saved, the focal point of Christianity is Jesus himself because he is the way. Look at what he said in this little interaction he had with his disciples. Thomas said to him, uh, he said to Thomas, you know the way that I'm going. And Thomas, his disciple, says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responds, I am the way. He says, you do know the way because you know me. Every religion or worldview says, if you change, you will be saved. Christianity says, if you know Jesus, You'll be saved and then you will change. That is an incredibly different way of looking at life and the self. Let me illustrate it like this. Years ago, we knew a missionary couple who were working in Kyrgyzstan. And they, they weren't able to have kids themselves. But they adopted two boys from an orphanage. And when they brought the boys in, the reason they adopted both at the same time was because they, they got on really well in the orphanage and they didn't want to break them up. So they, they took on both boys at the same time. But after a couple of months, somewhere around month three, they noticed that the boys were fighting a lot. 
And this was unusual because they'd had a pretty strong friendship before, and so it was, they couldn't quite work out what was going on or what was being so disruptive. It turned out, as they spoke to the boys, that the boys thought that only one of them was going to be adopted. And they were fighting with each other because they wanted to be the one who got to stay. And they said, once they told the boys, no, we're not sending either of you home. We've adopted both of you, and it's for keeps. We're not going to unadopt you. It completely changed the way they behaved. Once they knew they were accepted, their behavior changed. They didn't, they weren't, they, once they realized they weren't going to have to behave in order to be accepted, it transformed the way they saw themselves in their life. That's the gospel. Every other religion or worldview says, if you change, you will be saved, you will be made whole, you will find life to the full. Jesus says, if you know me, you're saved, and it will change your life completely. That is a radically different way to think about things. That is what Jesus means when he says, I am the way, not I'm going to show you the way. And this leads to his third and most radical claim when Jesus says, I am the life. Jesus says, I'm the truth that changes everything I'm the way rather than one who's going to show you the way. And lastly, he says, I am the life. Now, first and foremost, in this context, they're talking about life after death, life that goes on forever. When he says, I go to prepare a place for you, he's saying, I'm preparing a place for you forever. But in the Bible, life is not just merely existence or the absence of death. Life means life to the full. Jesus, in this very same gospel, just a few chapters earlier, says, I have come to bring life and life to the full. So we know that what makes life worth living is relationships. The reason that solitary confinement is illegal is because it is such a dehumanizing thing, isn't it? To lock someone away from any human contact, I mean, the mental strain that that puts on a person and the the deforming effect it has on their soul is profound. And so it's illegal. You are not allowed to do it. And the reason for it is we were made for relationships. But the truth is, no one will find a relationship in this life that absolutely will never, ever let you down. There is not a relationship that will last long enough or be fulfilling for long enough in order to fill every desire that we have in this life. Jesus says, I am the life. Once you know God and have been reconciled to him, you have the relationship that makes life worth living and gives life and life eternal. It's the one we were made for. And this is what it means to have Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is good news. If you are here today and you are a parent, this is good news for parenting. Isn't it the case that parents feel an enormous pressure to provide their kids with the best possible life? There are are very few parents you would meet who would not say, I want to give my kids the absolute best life they possibly can. And not just to give them as much stuff as possible, but you want them to be good people. You want them to be a benefit to the people who are around them. But really, if we're honest, we know there's not much we can do about it. There's, I mean, there's a limit to what we can do, really. Uh, our kids, we've got three little kids, and our oldest is a redhead, is a ginger. He's going to have a hard time. <laughs> I went to an all-boys school. I know what's ahead of him, and I know that it wouldn't help him for me to show up to school and start bullying the kids who are bullying him, right? There's, just, there's no way around it. He's going he's gonna to have to be strong. He's going to have to grow resilient. He's going to have to bear with people doing this over his head, right? Things like that. And in some ways it breaks my heart because I want to give him the best life I possibly can, but I don't really have the power to do it. And more than that, we want our kids 
to be good. We want them to behave. We want them to have genuine character. We want them to, to contribute to society and not just take from it. But oftentimes, when we want to encourage them to be good, we tend to motivate them, if we're honest, through threat. And I don't mean by the threat of actual, like, you know, do this or you'll get a whipping. Was, <laughs> I just got very, like, 18th century there. I don't know who's even saying that. But anyway, you, you know what I mean? But it tends to be in more subtle ways, isn't it? When we want to motivate our kids to behave, what do we say? When our kids are crying and they just won't stop, the temptation is to say to them, like, oh, come on, big boys don't cry. What's the motivation there? Well, you don't want to act like a girl, do you? Well, you don't want to act like a baby, do you? You know, how will people think of you? When you tell your kids things like, don't lie, because people aren't going to want to be around you. That's motivating them with a threat, right? You say, if you lie, people aren't going to like you. You're not going to have friends. Be kind, because then people want to be around you. Tell the truth, because people want to be around you. These are all motivations from consequence. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the way to give your kids the good life is to give them Jesus. If he really is life, then the job of the Christian parent is just to give them Jesus. You want them to be kind? Show them Jesus, who was kind even to his enemies. You want them to be accepting of others who are different from them? Show them Jesus, who said, pray for your enemies and those who persecute you. You want them to be strong and not just do things so that other people will like them? Show them Jesus, who lived only for the approval of his heavenly Father, which he already had. You want them to be able to admit their faults and move on? Show them Jesus, who loves even sinners who have sinned against him again and again and again. You want them to be patient? Show them Jesus. You want them to be courageous? Show them Jesus. You want them to conquer fear? Show them Jesus. There are so many things that are out of our control, but the the clutes who are committing to it today were committing to just show their kids Jesus. And that's an amazing gift. But what do we do with this for us? Let's say if you're here and unconvinced about who Jesus is, I would urge you to make a decision about who he is. There really can be, if what Jesus said, well, I mean, it's out there in the Gospels, what he said leaves us in no position to sit on the fence when it comes to him. He's either the worst liar in history or he's the son of God and nothing in between. C.S. Lewis put it this way. C.S. Lewis said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus, that is. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, classic, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. I would urge you, if you haven't landed somewhere on Jesus, to land and land hard. There is no in-between with him. We run something, as Gav mentioned, called Christianity Explore, where you can ask any question you want as we move through a gospel, the story of Jesus' life, about who he is. Because if it's true, this is truth that transforms absolutely everything. And if it's not, it's something you'd want to be sure is not true. 
And so I'd urge you, if that's you today, to make a decision to do that, to not put it off or to fence it. Jesus is someone who we must have an opinion on. And if you are here and a follower of Jesus, then I'd urge you to follow. The section of John that we're in is from chapters 12 to 21, and they are bracketed by two calls to follow me. In chapter 12, Jesus says, anyone who would serve me must follow me. And in the last chapter, when he's telling his disciples basically that they're all going to die for sharing the message of Jesus, he calls them again, follow me. You are called to follow him. So I said before, every other worldview says, if you change, you will be saved. But Christianity says, if you know Jesus, you're saved and you will change. But here's the issue. If you don't see change in your life, you may not have seen Jesus and you may not be saved. To say, I know the way, the truth, and the life, and it has impacted me not at all, it doesn't really vibe. It doesn't fit together. It's on, the, it's on the level of saying, imagine you met someone who just before this service, you met them, you hadn't seen them for a while, and you said, how's your day been? How's your mother's day? And they said, oh, it was good. I got in a, a car crash, like the, the, you know, ran into a bus, it sort of all blew up and I walked through the flames. But, so I'm a little bit late, but I got here fine. And there's not a scratch on them. You would say, I'm, I'm sorry, I might have misheard you. I thought you said you were in a crash or whatever. Because if, if that were the case, there would be obvious signs of impact, right? If someone says, I've met God in flesh. I know that Jesus is God, the way, the truth, and the life. How's it affected your life? Eh, not that much. There's something hasn't fit there. Something isn't fitting together. When Martin Luther King, in his famous Selma address in Montgomery, Alabama, challenged the people in the South, he challenged them that those who took the name of Christian should act like it. He said that the southern churches had been segregated from Christianity, that they took the name of Jesus and yet it had no impact on their life. May it not be the same of us. If Jesus says to follow, we are called to follow. If you know the way, the truth, and the life, it must transform your life completely. Let's pray that over this series it will and continue to. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a merciful God. You didn't leave us in our sin, but sent Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, to show us who you are, to make the way and to be the way back to you. He is the truth that changes everything. Most of all, he is the life without which we cannot live. And we pray that we would not neglect to think on these things and that it would not we would not neglect to have these things transform our lives, the way we see ourselves and the people around us, that we would love like Christ has loved and serve like he has served, and all of this for the glory of your name. Amen. We're going to take a moment, as we do each week, to reflect on those truths, and after that, Gab's going to come up and share a little bit about what's happening next.